Welcome to Beyond Speaking with Brian Lord, a podcast featuring deeper conversations with the world's top speakers. Hi, I'm Brian Lord, your host of the Beyond Speaking podcast. Our guest today is Neil Pazricha. Neil is the New York Times bestselling author of seven books, including The Happiness Equation and The Book of Awesome. Neil has degrees from Queen's University and Harvard Business School and spent a decade as director of leadership inside Walmart, the world's largest company. His first book, The Book of Awesome, was based on his blog, 1,000 Awesome Things, which has scored over 50 million hits and twice won the Webby for the best blog in the world. As a speaker, Neil has delivered one of the 10 most inspiring TED Talks of all time. He has spoken to hundreds of thousands of people around the world, from Ivy League deans to Fortune 500 CEOs and to the royal families in the Middle East. So, Neil, thank you for stepping down from the royal families of the Middle East to talk to me today. Uh, coming it, at you it, live. It was, one, it was one royal family. Just one royal family. Yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll try and work on. You've got two Webbies, <laughs> one royal family, partridge in a pear tree. But you know what, Brian? When you speak to a royal family in the Middle East, uh, I have done that once in my life. And the room, I thought, I was expecting, you know, like, I don't know, six people in the room, 12 people in the room. It was like 350 people in the room. <laughs> and when I got there, I was like, why is there so many people here? And then people are like, you know, you, you know, you can have multiple partners and each of the multiple partners has multiple kids and then they can have multiple partners. So believe me, one family, it's a big <laughs> family. It's like a full-size audience. And you're saying like your family, cause you've got four kids, you've got yeah. four adorable kids, four, four little boys. Yeah. And, and you're saying you come from a big family in your area. Well, actually my mom was one of, my mom is the youngest of eight kids born in Nairobi, Kenya. Okay. okay. My dad is the second youngest of five from Amritsar, India. They had an arranged marriage in England. Okay. I, I mentioned arranged because literally my dad goes out on a date with my mom, performs the hamburger test on her, which means he orders two hamburgers and watches to see if she'll eat it. <laughs> if she eats it, let's get married. <laughs> and the, their second date was their wedding. Their second wow. date was their wedding two weeks later. And, you know, the, I guess joke, but it was like, he's just like, I just didn't want to marry a vegetarian. You know what I mean? That was his <laughs> one, that was the one criteria he had. So they come over to Canada. My dad had already established himself here. He was the first high school physics teacher at a local high school outside of Toronto. Mm -hmm. He met my mom in England. She's there because she's fleeing East Africa because of the Idi Amin crisis in the seventies. Mm. They come over. They start a family in the suburbs of Toronto and presto change. there is my sister and I. I'm born in 79. My sister's born in 81. We grew up in Oshawa, Ontario, for any of your listeners that are familiar with the Toronto suburbs. And there was just the two of us. But I do think that big family gene is somewhere encoded up my lineage. Hence, my wife, Leslie, and I now having four tiny, adorable boys. <laughs> now, do your, do your grandparents get to see them often? Or that is that do you still do big family stuff at all? Well, sadly, when I was born, I had no grandparents on both sides of my family. I mean, I had one grandmother still alive. She did not speak English. She did not live. She lived across an ocean. Mm -hmm. So I never had the connection. But it's interesting when Leslie and I got married, my wife is seventh generation Torontonian. Mm -hmm. so, so she's seventh generation, this city, Torontonian. So almost walking distance from our place in downtown Toronto, we have grandparents, her, her parents, which is my kids, grandparents, and she has three living grandparents, meaning that my parents have three living great grandparents. So if you add up my parents, throw them in the mix, my <laughs> children are growing up with seven grandparents, you wow. know? So as lifespans get longer, Brian, 
you know, potentially more of us will get to experience the pleasure of a large family tree, which I did not experience in my childhood. But now my kids are let's just put it this way. They get way too many gifts at Christmas. I'll just put it that way. (laughs) Yeah. And I imagine you travel around a little bit. I I don't know how many you have, but that equal, usually the more grandparents, the more, you know, sort of areas where you get together for the holidays and and everything else. That's, that's got to be a lot of fun for them. It's a, it's a wonderful joy. We're very, very lucky. Um, you know, we're close to both sides of our family and Toronto has become a bit of a, you know, there's that old quote from Daniel Gilbert. He wrote the book Stumbling on Happiness, which came out in 2006. The quote is, if I knew everything there was to know about you, your nationality, your gender, your income, your health, I'd only need to know about the strength of your relationship with your friends and family to know how happy you are. And so irregardless of almost everything else I do in terms of my research, in terms of my books, in terms of my speeches, all, all, all that stuff, you know, honestly, how, how tight are you with your friends and family? Mm-hmm. How tight are you with your friends and family? You're in Nashville. You've got your, your family really close to you there. I mean, that's wonderful. That is, you know, as Daniel Gilbert says, he's the Harvard psychologist. He's the guy doing the research. He's like, that is almost the prime indicator mm-hmm. on your happiness. Everything else we can talk about, and I'm sure some of the things we'll talk about today, these are things that we can, you know, this is the sprinkles on the Sunday, mm-hmm. right? But you want to get the bowl ice cream, right? Be tight with your family and friends. Now, did you read that and get into happiness or what? Because oh. you're kind of you know, with a, a happiness guru, so to speak. So where did you get started into that, this whole concept? Unhappiness. The source of my interest in happiness is unhappiness. Hmm. Uh, I grew up, you heard the background. So, you know, uh, idyllic, uh, pastoral, uh, you know, certainly like trauma free. Like I grew up with like, you know, my mom was an accountant. My dad's a a high school teacher. Um, you know, we, we wanted for nothing. We went to the local public school. We walked there and back. We came home for lunch. I, 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 you know, I I graduated. I, I I went to a a university two hours down there. This is all going according to plan, Brian. But what happened in my late twenties was the wheels fell off. And these days, when you grow up in the worlds that we grew up in, typically we're not really primed for thick skin and great resilience. I don't know what you're doing to sort of inculcate your kids on this sort of thick skin gene. But for me, it's a constant worry. You know, it's a constant worry on my kids. I'm like, ah, are we going to, are they going to be able to get back up? Because when I hit my first speed bumps in my late 20s, I did not get back up. My speed bumps were uh, a wife who left me in a marriage that was two years old. We just bought a house. We're talking about having kids. And she's just, just like, this isn't going to work for me. I met somebody else. I don't love you. I'm out. And just a few days after that, my best friend. So Chris Kim and I went to Harvard business school together. We went on a 10,000 mile road trip together afterwards. He landed in Washington, DC as a school teacher. I was up here in Toronto. We talked almost every day. He's like my best friend. He took his own life. He took his own life and it was like, bam, I lost my marriage. I lost my best friend. I lost my social connection from these people. I had to sell my house. I'm writing a eulogy. I'm looking for an apartment. I lose 40 pounds due to stress. Mm. And the effed up thing is that everybody at my work at Walmart is like, you look awesome. You look great. What's your secret? How'd <laughs> you lose all this weight? Like, it was really weird for, for me mentally. The first time in my life I'm ever getting compliments on my appearance is after I've just gone through a heart-wrenching divorce and the loss of my best friend. I get addicted to news media. I get addicted to social media. I'm stuck on Twitter. I'm stuck on Facebook. I'm lonely. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. One night I start a blog to cheer myself up called 1000awesomethings.com. 
I start writing every day for the next thousand days, Brian, about one thing to cheer me up. That's it. Finding $5 in my old cold pocket, wearing warm underwear from just out of the dryer, <laughs> peeling an orange in one big peel. You know, nobody reads this website except for my mom. My mom says it to my dad. My dad doubles the traffic. You know, <laughs> then I get 10 hits, then I get a hundred, then I get a thousand, then I get a million. Then the International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences calls me up, flies me to New York, praise me on a red carpet between Martha Stewart and Jimmy Fallon. And they award me the Webby Award for best blog in the world. <laughs> 10 literary agents come out of the woodwork, like out of nowhere, you know, like it's like feel the dream. They just like walk out of the hedges. Wow. One of whom was our mutual friend, Aaron Malone at William Morris Endeavor. And she signs me up to uh, a book deal basically you know signs me up and auctions off my blog you wouldn't think that a blog printed out and stapled together would do very well but actually the book that resulted from it called the book of awesome this thing ends up selling a million copies <laughs> I, I tried to tell people it's free on the internet you know just go get it online sells a million copies i get invited on the today show all the talk shows i'm still a wreck by the way i'm still like struggling in online dating can't find the date i still my social life i got three contacts in my phone Two years after this happens, I'm researching happiness to try to answer questions for the media. They go, I go on the Today Show, Mary Fierre is like, so how do you teach all of America to be happy? I'm like, I got no idea. <laughs> <laughs> My parents are Indian immigrants. Do your homework. So I start researching <laughs> happiness. Two years later, I fall in love with a woman named Leslie. We go on a honeymoon to the uh, Southeast Asia. I was about to say the Middle East. Southeast Asia. Seems like forever since we could travel. And... <laughs> On the flight home, she's not feeling well. She buys a pregnancy test in the Kuala Lumpur airport. On the flight home, she tells me she's pregnant. We land home in Toronto. I write a 300-page love letter to my unborn child. That love letter turns into my next book, which is called The Happiness Equation. If you're watching this on YouTube, I just got up to try to get it and rip my headphones out. The, <laughs> happiness, the happiness Equation is the book I wrote that was not, I'm not, Daniel, I'm not doing all the research and trying to figure it out. I'm the guy reading all this stuff, all these dense thick, ugly to read white papers and trying to synthesize them for my own brain and the brain of my children. It just so happens. I mean, the reason we're even chatting today is that this is a skill that's really important these days because we're drowning in information. And so all I do in my speeches is just synthesize simple models, simple tools, simple takeaways to try to distill this giant world of academic research on the study of happiness into simple things. How did I get into happiness? Unhappiness. Mm. Divorce. Friend suicide, blog, goes viral into a book, asked a million questions, can't answer any of them, researches it, writes another book. That's the whole story. <laughs> um, one, of, uh, you know, one of the things you talk about is you are awesome. Yes. One of the key themes of that is resilience. You know, something, mm -hmm. it's something we've always needed. And that's the thing that a lot of us as parents or, or friends or coworkers have thought about for ourselves, for others, especially over the past two years. You know, what are those keys uh, to building resilience? First thing you got to do is get rid of the cell phone. I'm, I'm not going to be the first one to say this. I'm not going to be the last one to say this, but I'm going to be the loudest person to say this. The cell phone is getting in the way of our mindset and our resilient brain right now. There's three problems with cell phones. Number one, by the way, all three problems start with the letter P. First, the first one is psychological. On the internet, you're a loser. You are a permanent loser. Your podcast, I'm sorry to tell you this, doesn't get enough downloads. And by the way, neither does mine, right? <laughs> 
and, and, and I never have enough likes. I never have enough friends. I never have enough followers, never have enough comments. I'm a loser on the internet. Used to be when I was a kid in high school, you could be the best basketball player in your high school team. Now there's someone throwing, shooting free throws behind their back at half court on YouTube. You're a loser. <laughs> on the internet, we're comparing our director's cut life with everybody else's greatest hits. This is a psychological problem. Okay. Second thing also starts with letter P productivity. We're fooling ourselves thinking that we're getting more done with the cell phones. We're not. McKinsey says that we now spend 31% of our days bookmarking, prioritizing, and switching between tasks. Well, people say, what do you mean bookmarking? I was like, you ever ask your partner to come downstairs and watch Netflix at 930? What are you doing at 10? Let me guess. You're on Rotten Tomatoes. You're on YouTube looking at trailers. You haven't got no, any clue what to watch. But you're <laughs> like, forget it. It's too late. We can't start a show now. It's 10 o'clock. That's bookmarking, prioritizing, switching. You're doing it all day on your phone. Third and final problem with cell phone starts with letter P as well. This is the biggest one. Physiological research from Australia says if you look at a bright screen within an hour of bedtime, you don't produce as much melatonin overnight. Hey, newsflash, you know what melatonin is? It's the sleep hormone. You want to have a deep, restful sleep? You need to have melatonin. You don't? Guess what you wake up with, Brian? Low resilience. Guess what you do when you have low resilience? Look at your cell phone. You need a dopamine hit. Quick, tell me what the hang sand index did overnight. Let me update my fancy football team. Guys, the cell phone is the problem. People say, okay, Neil, easy for you to say. No, it's not easy for me to say. Get the phone out of your bedroom. you got no excuse. There's no reason why 95% of us right now are waking up within five feet of a cell phone. In fact, a lot of people, especially people under age 28, are sleeping with it under their pillow or in their hand. I'm not joking. Hmm. Now, you say, okay, Neil, how do, we get, how do we get more resilience? I say, don't start your day with your phone. Get the phone out of the bedroom. Instead, start your day with something I call two-minute mornings. Two-minute mornings. What's two-minute mornings? Well, did you know, Brian, that you are awake for 1,000 minutes a day? It's true. You are awake for 1,000 minutes a day. What if I told you that you could spend two of them? I'm looking for cue cards to show you this because I know that some people might be watching this. But let's just say, forget the cue card. Two minutes. All I want is two minutes of your time. And what do I want you to do? I want you to write down three things. Number one, I will let go of. Number two, I am grateful for. Number three, I will focus on. I'll say it one more time. I will let go of. I am grateful for. I will focus on. Each of these three prompts is backed by science and research showing that you can cultivate a positive mindset for the day. I will let go of comparing myself to Tim Ferriss. I will <laughs> I'll, I'll let go of the fact that the dishes are never empty. And what is up with my sink? It's always full of dishes. It's crazy, right? I'll let go of the fact that I think I burnt my kids' brains in the pandemic watching Paw Patrol. <laughs> I will let go of, you're down in Nashville. We were talking about, about the area recently. You could, hey, look, Catholics listen to this. You know, the, you know this Catholic confession chamber. Bless me, Father Fry of Sin. They put Big Tony in a vice under the deli. You know what I'm saying? From the mobster movies. It's not just Catholicism, Brian. Buddhism, Mormonism, Judaism, Islam. Did you know almost every world religion that's existed for thousands of years has a confession practice built into it? Yeah. And if you don't trust the religion, by the way, National Geographic says the fastest growing religion in the world is actually none. In fact, some countries like New Zealand, France, and the Netherlands are about to tip over to a secular majority for the first time. So if you don't want to look at the religion, fine, look at science. Science Magazine, Dr. Brasson and her colleagues published a report called Don't Look Back in Anger. It shows that writing down a regret as you're aging increases your contentment. I'm saying start your day by writing down something that you are thinking subconsciously about. Then what I want you to do second is remember, I am grateful for. 
I am grateful for. Professors Emmons and McCullough say you only need to write down 10 things you're grateful for a week in order to not only be healthier, uh, happier, but physically healthier. If this is a bicep curl, writing down gratitude is a brain curl. Problem is, I tell this to people, people say, oh yeah, okay, I'll do it, I'll do it. Oh, my, my husband and my kid and my dog. That's what I'm grateful for. That ain't gonna work. <laughs> that ain't gonna trip up area 17 and your visual cortex, which actually needs to light up when things are specific. You gotta say, when my husband Antonio put the toilet seat down, <laughs> when my daughter Sonia learned how to write her name, when my rescue dog stopped peeing in the laundry room, they gotta be specific. And then the third and final prompt I've given you on this two minute morning practice is called, I will focus on, it's not just me. Professor Roy Baumeister at the University of Florida says you're suffering from decision fatigue right now, higher than ever cognitive load. Should we wear masks? What about vaccines? What are we gonna do for the holidays? Blah, 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 blah. You know what you need to do? Carve one thing you will do from your endless could do and should do. It's called, I will focus on cleaning my home office. I will focus on finally getting my oil changed even though the light's been on in my car for two months. I will focus on getting a dentist appointment. You know, I've been thinking about it for the whole pandemic. So that two-minute morning practice is the solution to slowly cultivating a, a mindset of resilience. You wake up, there ain't no phone around. You start the two-minute morning practice. Side note, I'm holding up two-minute mornings, the journal right now. You sell a lot of these through your bookstore. And the reason is because my book that sells the most copies is the one that has no words in it. I wrote a journal. It's called Two Minute Mornings. It just says those three things over and over again. Number one review on Amazon, one star. This is just the same three things every day. But it's selling more copies than all my books put together. You know, you have a lot of the stuff that's kind of personal, but you also have this great business background. You know, being with Walmart for several years, you know, one of the things you talk about also are, you know, leaders. How can leaders work on themselves to be better leaders? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Look, I was director of leadership development at Walmart. Okay. Now Walmart's a big company. It's got 2.5 million associates. Associates is just Walmart speak for employees. And there was multiple directors of leadership development, but my job is director of leadership development. I had a team of 12 people. My job, grow managers to directors, grow directors to VPs, grow VPs to SVP, grow SVPs to C-suite. Everybody listen to this. Say you got a job and you want to know what the number one derailer is amongst all leaders at all levels inside the world's largest corporation. I'll tell you right now. It is EQ. You can't ship someone off to empathy class. You can't send Tony off to compassionate school. Oh, Tony, you're awesome at your job. Tony, no one likes you in the meeting. Tony's not getting promoted. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, Brian, the number one derailer of all leaders at all levels is EQ. What if I was to tell you right now? I know the solution. You aren't going to, this isn't normal. This isn't a normal recommended thing that they say in corporations, but I'll tell you exactly what it is. Here it is. Read 20 pages of fiction every night before bed. First of all, I've already made space for it because I told you to turn off your cell phone before bed for an hour. Remember I said that? So mm -hmm. you aren't going to look at a bright screen right before bed. What are you going to do? You're going to feel antsy. You can floss with your partner. You can, you know, I have a game you can play called Rose, Rose, Thorn, Bud. We could talk about that later if you want. But I'm saying read 20 pages of fiction. Why? 2011, Annual Review of Psychology says only reading fiction, especially literary fiction, opens up the mirror neurons in your brain responsible for empathy, compassion, understanding. Does that sound familiar? That's EQ. They said you can't ship someone off to empathy school or compassion school, but you can read fiction. You know what happens when you read fiction, Brian? You're not you. 
you're another gender, you're another religion, you're in another time of the world, you're in another place of the world. Our reader lives a thousand lives before he dies. The man who never reads lives only one. And yes, I stole that quote from Game of Thrones. <laughs> but if you read fiction, look, I'm holding, I got a pile of books right beside me. You read There, There by Tommy Orange, you're, you're an indigenous, you're an indigenous American. You, you, have you had that experience? You read Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. You're on a cotton farm in the 1800s in Alabama. Have you had that experience? You read Ready Player One by Ernest Cline. We talk so much about diversity and inclusion. I'm giving you the prescription for resilience in corporations is actually to read 20 pages of fiction from a real book. And by the way, 65% of Americans have not read a book in the past year. Two thirds of Americans have read zero books in the past year. And when I stand up in front of business audiences and I say, tell me why, tell me why, they all say the same thing. You know it, there's no time. And I say to them, that's BS. Because <laughs> the University of California did a study on this. You read more words per day today than you ever have. You read the equivalent of a 200-page book per day today. Wow. It's called Instagram comments, blog feeds, news headlines, Twitter rolls. The average knowledge worker gets 147 emails a day on top of that. I'm not saying add 20 pages to your pile of garbage. I'm saying take 20 pages out of your pile of garbage and insert 20 pages of fiction from a real book. At the end of the year, you will have read over 20 books and you will have lived 20 other lives, expanding and opening up the mirror neurons in your brain responsible for empathy, compassion, understanding. What kind of uh, reception did you get when you tried to introduce this? Well, like it's when you're actually in, a, in the job force at, at Walmart. Yeah, right. And I'm talking to the C-suite and I'm saying, oh, yeah, you got to read, uh, you know, Jane Austen. Yeah, no, I... <laughs> I'll tell you what it is. People have a natural, people have a natural tendency. Look, if you look at any leader's uh, executive bookshelf, it's, you know, seven habits of highly effective people. Good to great by Jim Collins. Mindset by Carol Dweck. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those books. All I'm saying is that we are ignoring the other half of literature. And that turns out that the half is not just storytelling for second graders. It's actually a wonderful way for leaders to expand and grow their empathy, compassion, and, and understanding, which happen to be the number one derailers at all leaders at all levels. Now, that's exactly why I started a podcast. Like since we're on your podcast, I may as well tell you, I started a podcast called Three Books. I'm not doing this for, I got no ads, no sponsors, no promotions, nothing. All I'm doing is it's my excuse to sit down with Malcolm Gladwell or Brené Brown or Quentin Tarantino or Judy Bloom or my childhood idols and say, hey, Judy, what are the three most formative books in your life? So I fly down to Key West, Florida, where 82-year-old Judy Bloom is honestly running a bookstore, literally behind the counter. That's what she's doing. And she sits, we grab a microphone, just like we're doing. And she talks to me about Madeline. Well, I never read Madeline before. She talks to me about The Wizard of Oz. Well, I never read The Wizard of Oz before. But now I forced myself to read it. I talked to her about it. I released it as a podcast called Three Books. And for me, I get to spend 15 years of my life chasing down the thousand most formative books in the world. I'm obsessed with the number of thousand. You've already heard me talk about it twice. My blog's called the thousandawesomethings.com. I'm looking for the thousand most formative books. The average human is alive for a thousand months and the average day you have a thousand waking minutes. I love it. Well, that's uh, that's such a great way to approach it, I think. Just, uh, you know, one of the other things, the last thing I want to talk about was trust, like building trust. Like people have to trust you in order to, you know, be on their podcast and, and be open like that. Or these leaders have to trust you to, 
to put those things into effect of reading, you know, fiction every day uh, or every night. Um, How do you build trust? Vulnerability. I mean, there are many totems of trust. I'm I'm working on a book right now about trust. I have nine totems that I'm working on expanding right now in terms of my research. And I could talk you through all of them. I could talk to you about, for example, shouting your values. There's a reason that at the front of five guys, they got a stack of potatoes there. There's a reason that at the front of Lululemon, they say, we believe in X, we believe in Y. There's something about shouting your values. I could talk to you about shouting your values. But I'm just going to say, to answer your question specifically about the podcast, about the conversations, if I want someone to open up to me who I've never met before, then I have to use vulnerability. Hmm. And when I say use vulnerability, I'm not saying wield vulnerability like some sort of weaponized thing. I'm saying it's just getting to the idea that I there's nothing I won't say to you. <laughs> like there's, you, I will tell you that I yell at my kids and I feel bad about them. I will, I will openly say the terrible mistake I made as a parent. You want to talk to me about speaking? I'll tell you about the worst speech I had. And, you know, I will, I will share all that to you because it helps you share that to me. And then the conversation gets interesting. It's not performative. So we're not on stages. We're having a real human connection. We're connecting our hearts. And that's the same thing I try to do with an audience. You know, I'm missing the live stuff now. Last fall, fall 2021, I was able to get kind of back to live for a little bit until the Omicron kind of thing popped up. But now I'm missing live again. And the same thing with the live audience. It's vulnerability. It's openly sharing your trip ups and slip ups and then having the audience come to you at the same place and say, me too. Mm. Also, me too, me too, me too. Then you've got a little embryo of trust in a room that if you treat it with the love and the respect that it deserves actually shifts an energy in an audience including the speaker and so that's always what i'm playing for is uh whoa i went somewhere else mm. you know well great well neil thank you so much for for sharing all this i know we could talk forever um but uh, i really value your time and being on here and and sharing about trust and resilience and happiness and crazy kids and everything else. And so, so thank you again for those watching. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed uh, Neil's podcast hoodie for everyone else um, I, uh, for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, check out Neil at premierspeakers.com. And on behalf of Premier Speakers and National Speakers, Neil, thanks for being on the Beyond Speaking Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking Podcast. To learn more about today's guests, go to beyondspeak.com. Make sure to leave a review and subscribe wherever you listen.